Welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. While the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. The Penile Rehabilitation Program was created by Melissa at Restorative Sexual Health. This is an online program to assist turning software into hardware without leaving your home. This program was designed for people who live in areas where access to health professionals in this area is not available, or for those who are just too busy to attend consults, or even for those who just feel more comfortable learning at home with online learning and consultations online. For more information about this program, please go to www.rshealth.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so Prost to you. November 11th. 11 a.m. 60 seconds kids watch on the wall. Welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today we're very pleased to chat to Glenn Poole, the CEO of the Australian Men's Health Forum, and we're just going to find out how long it's been around for, what it does, and how it might be able to AMF, MAMHF may be able to help you. So we've got Dr. Joe and we've got Glenn Poole and me. So hello everybody. Hello, Glenn. Hey Joe, hey Melissa, hello listeners and viewers. Now Glenn, we are very privileged to have um, spent some time working with you in the last couple of years through your Men's Health Awards. In fact, our podcast was nominated as um, a newbie that had a little bit of interest last year, which we were really pleased about just because we, we were, you know, starting up and it was great to get that exposure. I've spent the last 15 years devoting quite a lot of time to men's health, and that's because I just found that there was major gaps. And this really compared to the female situation, where at the time I was told when I started in about 2006 that men's health on average was about 30 years behind women's health. I think the gender gap is closing there, but that was my initial I guess stimulation to want to delve deeper and see where I could help some gaps myself what's your experience Glenn? yeah i mean maybe i'll give you a, a sort of short version of my my personal uh, oh. and men's health because you may have noticed uh, i am i am a man and i so i i i have had men's health myself so i bring just like to say that in this day and age looking like a penis owner doesn't necessarily mean you are a penis owner so that we just have to I'm glad you told us that you are a penis owner. Thank you. <laughs> Probably the first time I've been called a penis owner. I've been called shorter versions of that. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be very PC these days and just go penis owner, vulva owner. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for clarifying. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, looking back, um, I, I struggle sometimes to sort of date exactly where. Um, you know, my interest in men's health started because, you know, as I said, I've been a, a border boy, been a man all been, been a man all my adult life. Um, so I've always obviously without realizing it had an interest in 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 gender, as we all as we all have, but often in unconscious ways. But I usually say it's about the age of my daughter, who's now uh, 25 this year. And so I was a I was a full time at home dad. And so I had that real um experience of being uh, being in a minority in the world of primary caregivers and got very interested in 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 the challenges that faced um, men who took on that that role uh, and then not too far into my fatherhood journey became a separated um 
father and discovered the you know many of the challenges that separated parents and separated dads um face trying to um stay involved and bring up their their kids so that got me really interested in not just the sort of um the the the, the lived experience of, uh, of 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 being a of being a man and being a male parent because being a father is very in many ways very different from being a mother um but also um in the sort of like the, the, the policy and the political landscape that, that shaped that and the way that um the way that the sort of um systems dictated what, who couldn't couldn't do one what you know the number of times i would turn up to a doctor's surgery and there'd be a sign saying you know mums when you bring your baby to the oh, to the, yeah. the to the practice make sure you do this um and i was living in the most let's get the second mention of peace the first five minutes i was living in the 90s at the time in the most pc uh part of the uk which was the london borough of uh, which was like you know famously or mythically known for being pc about everything from manhole covers that were called person hole covers to black bin bags which were called refuse sacks to to everything <laughs> wow but they still had advertising mums groups that's terrible yeah i mean and, and obviously some of, some of that story was the mythology of, uh, of, of, of of the tabloid media but even so um it was a blind it was a blind certainly a blind spot um and i was very involved in activism and campaigning for a, for a few years a sort of legal change a systemic change which i still think is very important um but i always found i was the person on the outside sort of pointing and shouting at the policy makers and the politicians telling them they should do something different and that's after a while becomes very dissatisfying um mm-hmm. really interested in well what what are the actual practical um supports we can provide to um uh, not just dads just uh, you know at home dads or separated dads but to men and boys generally and so my local city brighton and hove a separate thing called the men's network and we set about connecting all the different types of practitioners and organizations that were trying to work with men and boys to see what the commonalities um were and it was kind of something that people didn't do at the time and we mm-hmm. how would we do that we work in boys education or we work in you know uh, prostate cancer or we work in uh, we work with old, old older men we work in male suicide prevention. We work with fathers. Why would we want to spend time? We're busy. Why would we want to spend time with um, people who do something that we don't do? But as we brought people together, we realised that there were huge commonalities because we were all working with, um, with 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 men and boys, and therefore lots of the the challenges and the barriers to engaging men that we experienced, and also a lot of, a lot a lot of the things that people did that worked seemed to work for men and boys. Um, were common across these different areas. And that was just a fascinating process in itself. Um, and then this work became sort of more national. Uh, we still have a national network in the UK called the Men and Boys Coalition, which continues a lot of that sort of networking, connecting kind of work. Uh, and then we got involved in international initiatives, um, like marking and celebrating International Men's Day in November, which brought me into contact with um, um, the men's health movement in Australia. So even before I came out here, I was through the power of the uh, the uh, the World Wide Web, connecting to um, to a similar movement of of practitioners o- over here in Australia, and got invited to come and speak at the the National Men's Health Gathering in about twenty thirteen, uh, and that was my first taste of the Australian men's health sector. And as it happened, I was personally on a sort of like a future future course to come to Australia because my my partner's a, a, a British Australian joint citizen. And when I came out here in 2015, I was very, very, um, just perfect timing, um, or very fortunate, or maybe the right person for the job. I don't know what exactly it was, but <laughs> the Australian men's, you know, on a good day, I say it's because I was the right, exactly the right person for the job. Another right time, it's timing's everything. Yeah. Timing's everything. Other days, I just wake up and go, man, you're a lucky fella, you know. Because uh, for me, I did, the best, I, I did the best job in the world. I've been doing this, which is connecting people with, men and promoting and celebrating that work trying to bring more profile to work with men and boys um for in different ways 25 years but for the last four or five years it's been my actual proper paid full-time job which my family's delighted about you know yeah you still going on about men yes are you actually getting i do i'm a ceo of a large organization in australia thank you very much that's great so you've actually turned your passion into your work that's pretty lucky yeah and and that's thanks to you know, a very mature um, men's health movement in Australia, which was has been around. The first national men's health gathering was in 1995 uh, in Melbourne. 
So, uh, so we trace our history back at least sort of nearly 30 years now. Um, but it was always run by passionate volunteers. And it's only in the past four or five years that we've managed to get the government to recognise the value of funding an organisation like the Australian Men's Health Forum, um, which is where I got lucky in terms of doing the job that I love. Great. So tell us about the Men's Health Forum then. Um, you've got some key objectives, obviously, but they're all, you know, as most objectives are, they're quite wordy. So tell us in a nutshell, what what is the, what does the Australian Men's Health Forum do and how would our listeners be able to access you guys for information, help, all that stuff. Yeah, I'll um, I'll start with the jargon and then cut through it. Right. No, Australian Men's Health Forum is a peak body. We're already in sort of in jargonistic level. You know, peak bodies are organisations that represent a sector, like a trade. <laughs> peak bodies for physiotherapists or nurses or doctors or social workers or whatever. And we are for this quite. Um, difficult to define group of people called people who work with men so we we, we say we're a we're, we're, we're a we're a network of individuals and organizations who work in some ways uh, to improve the lives and health of men boys it's quite wordy but encapsulates all the different people that are members of our organization and then to make it more more simple i hope we have a sort of an abcd of what we we, we do we we raise awareness of men's health issues a B, we promote best practice approaches to working with men. C, we connect people who are working with men. We connect the sector. And D, uh, decision-making, a big part of what we do, which is we're influencing decision-makers. We're influencing the, 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 the men's health policy landscape and getting politicians to put more focus on men's health as, a, as, a, as an issue. So, so we're not actually a... In the, in the UK, would be, would be called a second-tier organisation. So a first-tier organisation is, you know, facing out to the public and providing support directly to the public, whereas a second-tier organisation tends to support professionals and practitioners. Um, so we're that sort of set. We don't have a doorway out to the public, really. We, we, but we, most of our members do. So it's, it's our members who do, are out there doing the work, supporting men and boys directly, um, whereas, whereas we're in the role of people, championing those people through things like the Men's Health Awards, bringing them together to share and learn from each other through our, through our gatherings, uh, and then making sure that, that they have a voice at a political level uh, and that their work is recognised and hopefully more of it is um, supported and commissioned and funded. And can you perhaps give us an example of a, of a recent campaign that you've been involved with, maybe something from the beginning um, and to how you might have been able to help that grow or be more sure. Uh, exposed? Sure. So if I, just go, if I just go a little bit broadly first to say, you know, men's health sounds really straightforward, right? It's, it's the health of the health of men. And then often for a lot of people, they'll go, well, that's the things that men have that women don't have. So it's, it's prostate cancer uh, and anything penis related, which I'm sure is, uh, is ideal for the penis project. Yeah, perfect. Um, <laughs> Men's health is more than just penis. Yeah. So. Oh, is there a whole body attached to the penis? Not just a whole body, a whole network of social issues and all the rest of it. I know. Oh my it's, God. Uh, and here I was thinking it was all about just the penis. No, just about, joking. <laughs> yes, breaking, breaking news, folk. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I spend most of my consults talking about heads, big heads rather than little heads, which is interesting because, you know, that's that's really well, the best part. There are, are we moving? <laughs> sorry i interrupt you with my crap silliness go you can't on a penis podcast and not have a few penis jokes can you no that's right <laughs> so um so so yeah there are other areas of physical health or mental health that you could point to as well because men have different experiences so there are certain issues like you know heart disease men are four times more likely to die of heart disease than women before the age of 75 Everyone will, most people have heard of the fact that, you know, men are three times more likely to die of suicide. So there's other areas that aren't unique to men, um, but they mostly affect men or affect more. And then there's even just like, then at the other end of that scale, you've got stuff like um, stuff where men aren't the majority. And because they're not the majority, they might not get a good service. So stigma mm. or myth or lack of awareness. And so that would be mm. men with breast cancer. I was just about to say that's probably the best example, isn't it? Men who get breast cancer. That's about seventy percent of all cases, I think. Mm. I think it's one. Of the, 
Mm. It's one or two percent. It's very low, uh, or certainly deaths. Cases might be more. So we might yeah, be yeah. different things. Um, uh, but then there's issues like you know being a male victim of sexual sexual abuse, where both assault services are set up mostly standardly for 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 women, and most people's perception of sexual abuse is it's something that that, that men do to women. And yet there's a world of male victims out there who've been abused either by men or, and in some cases by women as well. So 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 men's health starts to open out beyond um, beyond sort of the penis to to other health issues and that impact men more or health issues where men aren't getting um, the, the, uh, a sensitive approach to response to their specific need. Uh, eating disorders. <laughs> Sorry, it's really interesting. I have, um, last year, I had two clients, actually, who came in with sexual problems. And when we got to the bottom of it, they were actually the victims of domestic violence from their female partner. And um, they, it was so hard to access services for those two guys, like really, really difficult. And, you know, so they came in for a problem that seemed totally unrelated that when we got to the bottom of it, it ended up. Now, I was really surprised, you know, I was like, I thought it would be much easier to access services for those men than it was. And do yeah. those services exist? Yeah, firstly, firstly complex. And um, it, it, without diving into that too much right now to stop answering your actual question, it, mm. it, it, uh, you'll find themes across all of these. So w- one of the ones is like stigma. So there's often st- more stigma attached. If you're in a minority and it's something that, you know, men don't normally, men aren't supposed to have or experience or is a mostly a, a female issue, then there's a, there's a huge stigma. It's a, not just a, not, you're not just experiencing the problem, but you're also experiencing the stigma, you're experiencing people's response to that. There's also a real risk as well because, uh, and you find this across both mental health and being a victim of domestic abuse, if as a man you come forward as a victim of domestic abuse or even sexual abuse, there's a risk of perpetrator. So in reaching out for help, you then get that secondary kind of um, uh, uh, issue of being, being, being pushed to a sort of a, a perpetrator type program. It's even happened to be abused who've been sent to perpetrator programs, which is you know, remarkable. And then same with mental health. You know, we say, well, men should come forward and get over the stigma, but if like a man... Uh, in certain professions, stands up and said, "Hey, boss, I need a mental health day." He'll be told, "Well, we don't need. We don't. I need reliable people. I can't be dealing with that. Just yeah. take a mental that." And you know, this really does. This really does happen. Not in all cases, but so there's the stigma, and then there's the risk uh, of actually being out for 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 help and support. Um, often in, with certain issues, and then we're still we're still. But just then branching out, as we get into domestic violence, we're now branching out from physical and mental into, into those broader sort of social issues. So you get, you know, you'll have older men who are isolated, you'll have far, fathers going through relationship breakdowns, things like unemployment or being in the criminal justice system, um, uh, financial distress, um, which will then come on to the, the, the one topic I'll talk about in more detail, which is male suicide. So health isn't just about... The penis it's not just about the body and, and 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 the mind it's about all these social factors that together um create or take away health and wellness um and, you know one of the biggest predictors of of whether you're going to live long is, is your level your level of education or the amount of or, or your 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 financial circumstances people from a lower so of low so lower socioeconomic status are going to have many more health issues than people of higher socioeconomic status um, so, so these are all parts of mental health, not just our, not just our body and our mind. Um, and so one area where we've really put a lot of focus in the last, um, sort of certain, well, 20 years really, but really intensely for the last five or six years is, is male suicide. And a big part of what we've been doing is, is breaking down the, the story that male suicide is a mental health issue that um and because men don't talk about their mental health as much as women that's why more men die of suicide which is a very kind of like uh, it, it's actually a, a poor analysis and it's also a very deficit-based analysis and basically say, saying the only issue here is that men don't talk and if men just talk yeah. that they would you know doesn't no one no one asks why why is it that more women attempt suicide than men do more women attempt suicide because they're not talking or is it only does not talking only apply yeah. <laughs> the more 
disorders because they don't talk about it than men. No, we talk about the social pressures of, of eating disorders of, 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 for women and why that, why that arises. So it doesn't, A, a it doesn't actually work. <laughs> uh, mm. Just then go out and go, right, we need a big campaign to get more men to talk. It will, you'll, you'll see no shift in the, in, in, in the suicide now. So, and what, what, what is true though, is that, is that for, for the vast majority of, of men who take their own lives, I think 98 or 90 percent, 98 or 99 percent of them will have at least will be experiencing at least one social um, factor like uh, financial distress, relationship breakdown, housing difficulties, uh, alcohol problems, substance abuse. Um, and we'll, we'll won't be in the mental health system because if you ask them what was wrong, they'd say, well, you know, I've split from my wife. I can't see my kids or, I'm, you know, I can't afford my rent or I've got I've, I've got trouble with the, the police. They wouldn't say I've got, you know clinical depression and, 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 and I need to talk about it with someone so we've been working really hard to sort of just change the story around uh, around um, male suicide and try and balance a, a stronger focus on those sort of social factors but also look at how because um, mental health is still a, a pathway to suicide and, and, and mental health services still have a massive role to play how can we make mental health services more male friendly um, and a big part of that is actually just getting um, government to acknowledge that at a policy level and, and put funding into male suicide prevention. Because mm. the bizarre thing is, three out of four suicides are men, four out of five, up to four out of five beneficiaries of government funded suicide prevention services are women. So yeah. if you, you've got two choices, right? Either you yeah. go, right, we've we funded these services and men aren't using them, we, we, we need to get men to use them. Or you need to say, hang on a minute, maybe services aren't designed to reach men. We need to fund services. So can you just say that statistic again? Four yeah. out of five services. Sorry, just repeat that. Now, up to four out of up to four, because it's different for different services, but mm-hmm. up to four out of five users of government funded suicide prevention services are, are women. Wow. So okay. we put the millions of dollars into these. And, and say this is this is what we're doing for suicide prevention um and it will range from like um, a lifeline where maybe 60 percent of um of of people using that service for women up to something like um the kids the kids line where 80 percent of people phoning are girls not boys and so uh, so the water bowl's out but we can't get the men to drink it is that that's right, right. that's <laughs> okay so what what strategies uh, are you finding potentially might work better well, there's there's sort of a couple of levels to that, that problem. One is to actually say we need to fund services that are specifically aiming to reach men. Mm. So rather than forget about, let's keep. And firstly, we wouldn't advocate for taking away any of those existing services. They 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 play an important role, and there are men accessing. There are some men accessing those accessing those services or getting help and support. Um, but the first one is actually to put funding into in, into to specifically target um, projects that say we are for men, and we you know we we've done work on what makes services male friendly, um, and one one of the factors is service actually says we are for men and targets men. I mean, if you were a commercial if you were a commercial organisation you had a product and men weren't using it, you'd go and and we saw you know we saw this with Coca Cola. It's like Coca Cola was being was realized that they were reaching more men than women and so they came up with diet coca-cola to reach more women they didn't say you know why is it that women are reluctant drinking coca-cola you know they they, they need to woman up and drink coca-cola I said no what we'll do is we'll create a coca-cola just for you uh, yes. and then often the lag in the health behaviors of men compared to women you then started men going oh, could quite like to have coke but you know Agree, um, but not sure about diet coke because it's a little bit. <laughs> <fun. laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about what you said before, and I'm sort of thinking, you know, it sounds to me like instead of offering so much, like labeling it as a men's mental health program, it's like more like that's sort of treating the symptom rather than the cause. Whereas if you are helping men with domestic violence, financial issues physical issues such as sexual health or pain or whatever 
then that's the way to find out about the mental health issue and treat it. But actually go there by treating what the back the actual issue is rather than looking at the symptom because bad mental health is usually a symptom of a problem. Hi, Melissa here. I'm just interrupting this podcast, take a small pause to tell you that we'd like to invite you all to a men's health roadshow that we're holding on the 20th of March in Bustleton, the southwest of WA. It's from 2 to 4 p.m. Um, obviously, all you listeners won't be able to attend because a lot of you live in other countries or in other parts of Australia or even other parts of WA. But the whole idea of this is to give access to information to men and women who live in the country about men's health. So if you'd like to come along, please have a look at the show notes after you've listened to this podcast and the link to book a ticket will be there. Everyone's welcome and the idea is we just want to make access for people easier. Thanks a lot. Bye. 100%. In fact, we were having a conversation in a project we're working on um, just uh, just a couple of days ago uh, and we were looking at, we're, building, we're working with a partner to build a directory of support services for men around suicide prevention in New South Wales. And it's sort of a partnership between the suicide prevention sector and we, we've got a, a significant role in it. And there's a tension between, um, well, we, we, we should only really promote, you know, accredited kind of clinical suicide prevention services, which we know are 100%. I've got all the kind of frameworks in place to be considered a mental health service, which is understandable. And I'm not saying, yeah, but a lot of the support that our members provide is suicide prevention, but it's not labelled as suicide prevention because they're doing exactly that. They're, they're meeting men where they are and addressing the problems they have. Um, some is quite specific. So, for example, we'll have a service that's specifically, um, you went dark. You um, went dark. <laughs> and I, wasn't I wasn't moving enough and the light went off. My room's not used to me not jumping around like a crazy. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, some of it is very is specifically saying, you know, if you've got an issue, you're separating from your, your partner, you can't see your kids, you're going to court, if you've got an issue, this is a service for you. But the next level down is, is and we have this conversation where, where, where we're saying, Things like social, like into the protective factors, things like having social connection can massively reduce your risk, not just of mental health issues and suicide, but also a whole range of, of health issues. So we've got a lot of um, community-based men's support services out there, which are primarily um, just providing social connection. And then everything else is a bonus on top of that. So that's pretty much why I started my PROS program for men with prostate cancer. I didn't want them to feel like they were going to be obligated to go to a prostate cancer support group because we actually have those and apparently only about five percent of men actually access them right. every year and I thought well this model ain't working too well so I thought what do men like to do I thought men like to move men like to exercise so I set up a exercise program for men with prostate cancer in a football club and that was 10 years ago now and then I decided to call it prost which just means to your health so the whole thing was to say, right, where do men feel comfortable? What is a masculine environment? And it's a program that's never um, really had any trouble getting a lot of people participating. Um, and personally, I've always stepped back from it. I, although I set it up, I felt it should be a safe space for men to go along to. And yeah, we're kind of growing all the time. But yeah, I'm just reflecting on what I saw about 12 years ago wasn't yes. okay. Yeah, fits really well to your conversation. And, and that, that's the core of the men's health movement that that I I, I know and I, I'm a part of. It's been built by people like yourselves who have not sat around and, and, and said, why won't men engage with the service or how do we get men to engage with the service? They've created support services and community and build communities that work for men yeah uh, and, and it's i mean and, and australia is fantastic for that you know the men's sheds movement is a prime example the men's yeah. sheds movement, you wouldn't label it a health service and if you actually sent someone there on the basis that you know this is a health service and you'll get help with your health it wouldn't it, it wouldn't work for you but it you go to any mentioned and you have a, a, and the mildest conversation about i'm out obviously go out and talk about men's health and mental health and male suicide 
have, have any kind of conversation like that and, and one at least one bloke will always come up to you afterwards and go um yeah i knew leah you know i knew took my own life and yeah, uh, yeah. They, they don't know it but these old buggers are keeping me alive yeah and, you know, men's sheds are suicide for prevention but they don't prevent suicide yeah. so you know the, the the rate of suicide in the older population is, is higher than any age group. Is that correct? Uh, depends how you slice it. Okay. Um, so it tends to dip uh, in early retirement. So if you take 65 as early retirement, it sort of, it rises and rises in late middle age and then starts to dip off in, it's in, in early 60s, early 70s, but then starts to rise again. And then you get this, you get this rocket at about... Yeah. About 85 at the moment. Mm. Um, so, uh, and just to, in terms of rates, and, and this is, you need to, yeah. you need to, it's like, if you understand cricket statistics, you know, the number of runs you get on your batting rate are two different, two different things. Same with death. So the number of deaths, the vast majority are in men aged 25 to sort of working age men. So about 70% of male suicides are working age men. Um, but, you know, over 85 is a small population, but the mm. rate is, than any other age group can i ask you sorry just to take us away from suicide a bit but sure. um what what's your biggest challenge at the australian men's health forum like what do you think out of everything that you guys do is your biggest challenge it's it's always the a it's always the uh, the awareness raising and i don't mean that in that broad sense we need to you know make people aware of that, that they need to lose weight or they need some that the smoking's bad for them or they shouldn't drink too much, or they should exercise more, because we kind of all know that, right? Yeah. Um, knowing it doesn't always, knowing it isn't the, isn't the decisive factor because we've got to put it into action. But it, it's just awareness that that men's health men's health is an issue, and men men and boys are a population that actually needs specific help and support, and that that is massive. And if you're not if there's not an organisation or organisations or advocates putting that on the table it gets missed over and over again because our assumption is that we live in a world you know it's a man's world it works for men men are privileged and there's all these other groups that that that's um that aren't doing as well as, as as men are so we need to do these things specifically for other groups but men are already taken care of because it's, it's men making all the decisions well you know it's it's a small percentage of of men at the top of society who don't represent all men um, and so, you know, you said about men's health being 30 years behind women's health, and you can track that, you know, in any country, um, there's no country in the world where there'll be a men's health strategy before a women's health strategy. The only place in the world you get men's health policies is where there's a women's health policy first, and then 10, 20, 30 years later, people campaign and get a men's health policy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you look at, you know, there's, 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 a, there's minister, there's, every level, so, that we raised in in a paper we wrote before I started in in 2016 was the fact that um, men and boys that the phrase was by the person who wrote it men and boys are bereft of administrative structures. Now I've never met a bloke who says you know the problem Ben is that we are bereft of those administrative structures. But <laughs> <laughs> as in that we don't have a men's health minister representing us. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's we're, 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 that's that's not the word on the street. But the point the point is, yeah. There's no. Not only is there, is there not. The, the, we we do have a national men's health strategy. That's a that's a structure, but we don't have a a, a men's health minister. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't, and, and that men's health strategy is in preventative health. So it's very focused on the body and, and the mind. It's not looking at men's mm-hmm. well-being or men's social well-being issues. And then when you get to states and territory level, there's only two states at the moment that have anything remotely like a mental health strategy, which is WA and New South Wales. But there's no specific funding allocated strategies, so they're, they're good bits of paper with no weight, little weight behind right. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Yet you see, and it, it's, it's hard to it's hard to have this conversation without getting into you know what what aboutism. Then it's not like just because the women have got something, the men should have something. But when you look at what we've got in place for women. We've got we've we've got you have you have a, an office for women, and then you have a series of about four strategies around health, around safety, around economic security, and around um, participation in society, and that's at federal level, and then is passed down and 
also exists every state and territory level. Whereas with men, we've got one strategy at federal level and two little strategies at state level, and we don't have all the other structures in place to make sure that when our leaders are making decisions about what needs to be done, what needs to be funding, where money for health needs to go, that, that, that men and boys are taken into account. Um, and you see that then still in the amount of funding that goes to women's health versus um, versus men's yeah. health. I think it's a diffi- it's a tricky situation, isn't it? Because it's almost like with everything, and this is a particular case of it, that the pendulum needs to swing too far. So it's almost like, you know, the most people think that being a man, particularly a Caucasian man in today's world, is much easier than being a woman because of all things like, you know, the pay scale and all of those things. And I think it's important to have this conversation that, you know, it's not always the best option to be a man and um, that maybe the pendulum, in it, particularly in the area of health, has swung too far to the female side and we need to kind of even up a bit back into the middle. So those all those structures that are in place for women's health are fantastic, but it would be nice to be able to have that same structure for men as well. Yeah, there's no, it's, it's important to recognise that this is not, it's not an either or conversation okay. it's I, was about, I was talking about it at a local group one of the things i used to say because the pushback you i mean obviously you're a very fr- you're a very friendly interviewer. you know you're you're a, um but often when you take wider world you got you know the pushback oh so you want to take money off you know women's services do you or you wow. you know you're mm. you want to close the gap by making more women die of suicide do you would that be would that yeah. make things mm. yeah. provocative kind Logical. of neat yeah. things and and one of the, one of the things i back is i say i would say um um, you know what's your what's your favorite what's your what's your favorite animal charity and they're like oh you know the dog the dog the dog the dog home great okay so you give money to the dog home yeah I think it's really important to give money to the dog home so you hate cats do you <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> yeah. a very good example <laughs> you want to take cats do you right you think dogs are more important than cats do you <laughs> so no mm. I think that cats should be taken care of and dogs should be taken care of you know so um so how about we take we do a better job of taking care of and it's it shouldn't be, but it's a it's a mature it's a mature conversation. A mature society is able to say we want to make sure that we do the best for women and girls in 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 our society, and we also want to make sure that we do the best for the men and boys in our society. And those two things can coexist. We still live in a world where we're very we're very quick to do the black and white. It's like which is and and in the men's health space, we can fall into that category category too. You know, you can sort of say you know, well. Three times more men die of suicide, so all the focus on suicide should be on men. Well, no, of course it shouldn't, because there are still um, two women a day in Australia dying of suicide, and that's a, that's a massive issue that needs to be addressed. And my argument would be that by taking a, a, a gendered approach and a gender-aware approach to those issues, both for men and for women, and I can't think of any area where we do this well. You can apply this to heart disease. You can apply this to... Um, to, to, to suicide, you can apply this to weight loss, you can apply this to lots of different areas of health where, yes, you can have a the, the, the idea is, oh, we'll have a service that works for everyone. Well, there is no one size fits all. So you need to actually have a service that works, but also make sure that somehow within that service, you provide uh, approaches that take care of women's needs and also take care of men's needs. And also and people from different backgrounds and cultures and all of those things so that it's accessible. It's not just about your gender as well. It's about all those other things. Com- completely. Then you get into the world of, you know, uh, the pra- a world of practical intersectionality where you're thinking about, well, what are the needs of this specific person? What's most important to them? Is it their, is it their cultural background? Is it their, is it their gender? Is it, is, 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 it their, is it their personal experience, their past experience? You know? it's like, yeah, you're- I think... Sorry, leads to the fact that we need to funding small things that, you know, there's it's such a diversity. You kind of funding needs to be split into not just one overarching thing, but into these small things because that way it's more accessible for all. Whereas if you just have like one overarching place that all the funding goes, then that's going to be much harder to tailor it to all those individual needs and groups and genders and cultures. Yeah. And people do know this. You know, if you look at kind of like, you know, theories around health and population health, you know, they'll say, well, you need to have population level interventions, but then you also need to have like targeted interventions. You know, there's language stuff, but actually turning that into application um, in one area, small area, but where, where, which most people 
over a certain age would be able to relate to is bowel cancer. We can do a really good job of reducing um, bowel cancer through through screening, right? Um, and yet there are certain groups who just don't get as much screening as others. And yet we, do, we, we, we spend billions, tens of millions of dollars just doing sort of big universal ad, go and get your, go and get your bowels screened. Mm. And yeah. I've always thought, right, the, the invitation to, um, to, to, to to put a bit of shit in a bottle and send it back to the government would, would get more pickup, you know? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the middle of doing that since right now. Sorry, sorry for too much information. <laughs> then I wanted to ask you, you've been involved um, since 2016. Yes. Do you feel like there's been much progress in that time? Uh, uh, yes, certainly. I mean, I'd have to. I, no, I have made no impact, and um, uh, they should stop funding me. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting attitude softening. Are you getting more? Yeah, definitely. So it's um, it's more working at that kind of strategic level. It's more like uh, you know, you're working like you're trying to move an ocean liner. It's not like it's not it's not a nimble kind of thing that you can turn around very quickly. Um, and it's hard to measure sometimes, you know, um, you measure things like, oh, we've got more people have joined as members and we've got more people are visiting the website and we've got more people coming to events, you know, and, and that that in itself is important, that that increased level of activity. Um, but, yeah, when you sort of see, um, we've seen some shifts at, at, at policy um, level. I mean, the very fact, first off, that we got the men's health strategy renewed and revived, we advocated for that. It was first written in 2010. Had a had a couple of good years and then was sort of like ignored. We got that revived, so that that that's something that that we've achieved already. Um, and we're now starting to see um, more funding um, uh, specifically go towards, um, particularly mental health and 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 suicide, in the mental health and suicide space. We are starting to see more services specifically funded, both from a government level but also down at primary health network um, level as well. Um, so we are seeing change. We've certainly seen um, a uh, an upswell of sort of um, grassroots organisations. There's more. I wish I could count it properly, but there's definitely more men's groups and men's organisations and men's projects uh, around now. Um, you know, there's loads of grassroots men's mental health type projects, and some of which have got in the, in the, um, groups in multiple locations. Initiatives like the Man Walk, where guys get together on a on what one one night a week and just go just go for a walk together, and it's open to anyone. But over time, they talk, their, their their motto is walk, walk, talk, support, and they're building social connection and support networks for the, the activity of going for a free walk around a local park. And that it would, doesn't need to be anything, you know, extraordinary. Just that simplicity of linking. Completely, and and we know that's health giving. It provides people access, uh, provides blokes with access to, to social connection, more knowledge, more networks, all the rest of it. Um, and that started off by that started off by a, I think he's a physiotherapist in in Wollongong who who was just going for a walk around his local lake for his own health. His mate joined him. So what are you doing? Going for a walk? Oh, I'll come with you. And then yeah. some other people like said, "What are you blokes doing? Well, we're going for a walk. Oh, can I come with you?" And then it's sort of, <laughs> That's great. How it's how it how it started, and then they got some kind of they, they called it a thing and walk, and then yeah. it, and they got some coverage on like Seven News or something. And overnight, there were people saying, "We want one in our area." Can you get oh, one? Yeah. One? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And can they I said, ask no, a question? We can't set them up, but you can. You know. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering: is there anywhere in the world that's doing men's health particularly well? Like, is there somewhere that we should be looking to to go? Wow, they've got it right. Look, I think first off, we need to big up Australia. Um, you know, we've got some of the longest, best life expectancy in the world. Um, we, when you look at men's health in particular, um, Australia's created Movember. Yeah, Australia created the the men's sheds movement. Mm-hmm. Australia is one of three or four countries in the world that has a men's health strategy. So, you know, it's important to actually acknowledge what we're doing well here, first off. Excellent. And could we do better? Yes, we certainly could. Um, the other country in the world, which I, if you look at, you know, obviously lots of individual projects and practitioners worldwide, but um, as a country, um, Ireland has been um, remarkable in, in the way way that it's sort of um, 
uh, grown its sort of men's health sector. And it's all been about unfunded, passionate individuals working together. Um, they've got a really comprehensive men's health policy. And yeah, the they, first men's health policy, I believe. It was just, yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah. It does. I, I don't like to admit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and like 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 Australia has also then refreshed it and and, and learned from the first one, um, and but it's down to even though both Australia and Ireland can point to you know the top down they've got a policy, really it's been driven from the grassroots up. So it's been passionate individuals, people like yourselves who've set up individual projects and then actually gone, um, you know, individual projects are great, but we need. A- more of this and we need to encourage this and create an environment where more of this kind of focus on support men and taking that sort of strengths-based male-friendly approach not just sitting around and going oh blokes why don't they look after their health if only blokes would change they'd be healthier and actually going no that, let's create opportunities and environments where, where where men do take care of their health because of course of course men care about their health every human being yeah. cares <laughs> just um easier to take care of your health if the environment around you supports that it just mentioned earlier about the gender health gap with male survivorship we, we know it's about five years on average just by being being born a male that you have yeah. a life less life expectancy mm. we do see that closing gradually yes and um that's something i've been watching for a little while now and it's quite promising to see so you know. Yeah, not just closing, but it's so it's lent as well. So so collectively, um, our our health is improving. I mean, there's an interesting conversation there about quantity of life and quality of life, and it is the, yeah. the age that we we live to the best measure. But it's certainly the most sort of brutal uh, way of measuring where countries are at, and we are seeing life expectancies squeak up bit by bit. And, and there's certain things that I've, I'm just doing some mapping of, 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 of changes in the last 10 years. And there's certain areas like heart disease is really, really, it's still the leading killer, but the, the average age of death and the number of deaths is, is falling dramatically. But there are also some areas of concern. Uh, you know, some of the gaps aren't closing. So, I mean, heart disease is one of those ones where heart disease rates are going down for men, but they're going down for women a lot faster. And diabetes uh, is slowly is slowly increasing, and it's increasing faster in men. So there's certain areas where I think we need to um, we need to shine a light on that and say, hang on a minute, um, there's 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 a there's an issue here. Also, the gaps between the the bottom twenty percent and the top twenty percent are really stubborn. They they're not they're not they're not really shifting. In some cases, uh, some cases those health improvements are felt by the wealthiest and the healthiest first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you look at the whole overall average for the population, a lot of that is being pulled up from the top. It's not It's not even a problem. Yeah, because if you've got financial problems, then that's first and foremost in your mind to deal with and the rest of this kind of fades into the background, doesn't it, you know? And this is why, just I want to put on the table, boys' education is a mental health issue. So... Yeah. Very broadly speaking, the social determinants of health, the longer you stay in education and, and the higher education level, the longer you live. You know, someone once sort of calculated roughly for every extra year in education, you get an extra year of life. And, and that's a very broad kind of spectrum. It's, 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 a, it's a generalization. But it, that's one of the biggest, mar- that educational level is one of the biggest markers of, of, of what social outcomes you'll have, how wealthy you'll be, how likely you'll, you'll be to unemployed. How like you, you'll be to be be, be, a, be a smoker, be overweight, die early, all of those things. And and our school system is not as good at educating boys as educating girls. And if we could get one area of policy onto the public radar to actually be hacked and addressed, I would love us to see us actively working to improve boys' education because the level of education we give boys today is directly linked to how good men's health will be tomorrow. And that's not about educating boys about their health that's just actually giving boys literacy numeracy good a good rounded education um yeah perfect example of treating the cause and not the symptom not waiting until someone gets sick before you teach them we have um claire elderly here in perth western australia who set up the uh, kai fella foundation she goes into schools and 
works on trying to have boys feel comfortable talking about their emotional resilience and building their emotional muscles and those sorts of programs are now becoming nationwide. Yeah, those are important. And I'm mostly talking about just specifically education, as in, you and know. You're talking about teaching someone to read and write. And yeah. yeah, just making sure people leave school with an education so they have a, a longer okay. life expectancy because they'll make more money and all those things. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and rather than just scooping up at the, the critical crisis level, or you know, trying to support those left behind. Yes. Well, this has been fantastic. So, have you got anything else you'd like to say that we haven't asked you about today before we wrap it up? Oh, there's so many things that I can't count on. Um, but uh, so, I feel like I've probably talked for 90 percent of the time um that's the idea because you're the person being interviewed <laughs> me and my stuff so look can i can i thank you and can i uh can i just then take this this part of the podcast to say thank you for what what you're doing thank you for the work you do out in the world and for providing the platform here for for all the conversations that you're hosting i think uh, as, as a wonderful uh, thing you're doing both in your day jobs Great. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. And we both feel very honoured to be able to work in the men's space, particularly when we don't have penises. So <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's an honour for us. And, and just one final thing, how are um, our listeners best able to reach out to you for support or guidance to support services? Yeah, so uh, best place is just to search for the Australian Men's Health Forum uh, on uh, any search engine. Find us on our, on our website and our socials. So, yeah, Australia or AMHF will take you to our, our, our website. Right. Thanks very much, Glenn. Thank and you. We look forward to putting this on air. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Melissa. I'm going to tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions and so much feedback. And Melissa and I are absolutely thrilled about this. What we'd really love you to do, though, is to share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download using your favourite podcast app or subscribe to the penisproject.org. You'll get a weekly email and new releases. And this helps our podcast get more people And if you write a review and subscribe as well, well, we'll get known more widely across the globe. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Just a mystery to me. I've got a boy of my own now. It fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man.